chapter 1. We are continuing our study through the book of John. Today we'll finish the first chapter. So I will read our text for us as we get started, beginning in verse 35 of John 1, reading through the end of the chapter. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Father, open our eyes to understand these things, to apply the truth that we are about to consider to our lives and to our hearts. Come now, Spirit, and speak to us. Amen. So as we look outside today and and this weekend, we no doubt, if you're like me, enjoy this beautiful weather, the sunshine. Spring is definitely in the air. Summer is is just around the corner. We know that spring is here and summer is just around the corner because two weeks ago was not just Resurrection Day. It was also something a little less significant. It was opening day of the baseball season. We are now two weeks into to the Major League Baseball season. 
Baseball, I looked this up this week. Baseball is the highest attended sporting league in, in the world. Now, some of that's attributed to the fact that their season is so long. They have more games. They have more opportunities. They could draw a tenth of what everybody else draws, and still, because of the number of games, have the most fans. But the point is, there are millions and millions of fans. In fact, there's going to be about 75 million-plus fans that go to a Major League Baseball game this season. And yet, if you go back a couple hundred years, baseball was invented as simply a schoolyard game. Some kids just started playing a sport that resembled baseball and it evolved into the sport that we kind of recognize today. Rules were instituted. Professional leagues were formed. And now we have multi-billion dollar industry that exists because of baseball. And I'm sure if you had gone back those 200 years and and talked to those people that first picked up this fun little game just to pass the time, they would have had no idea of what that sport would have become. There are countless large corporations that dominate the business landscape today that can trace their origins back to equally as humble beginnings. I mean, legend has it that such dominant companies as Apple started in a garage. I think Microsoft started in a dorm room. Perhaps these multi-million and billion dollar companies started just as the vision of, of a couple guys putting together their ideas and their businesses have just exploded. And you would go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years and they would have had no idea of what their their plans would have led to. Today, Christianity is advancing around the globe. The message of the gospel is, is reaching into every corner of the earth. People from literally every tribe and language and nation are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet we go back 2,000 years we just read, really, the beginning of what has become the advance of the gospel in the world. And it simply started with very humble beginnings. It really started with personal conversations between Jesus and a few men that he interacted with at the beginning of his public ministry. And those interactions would begin a life for them of following after Jesus and fulfilling that which Jesus told them, that they would turn the world upside down for Jesus. And it all starts really here in John chapter 1 with these two scenes where Jesus begins to reveal Himself to people. They begin to see His true identity as the Messiah. And in both scenes, we are told to come and see. And when we come and see, we, we see Jesus for who He is. 
these narratives, these, these scenes that we see in, these, in this narrative is the beginning of the revelation of Jesus to his disciples. And the first scene I want us to look at is recorded in verse 35 to 42. It's where Andrew and Peter meet Jesus. And it all begins as John the Baptist is fulfilling his mission from God to bear witness to the Messiah. We saw back in verses 6 through 8 that God sent this man, John, to the earth for a specific purpose. His purpose, his calling, was to bear witness about the light in order that all might believe through him. John was beginning to fulfill that calling. He was baptizing. The other Gospels tell us he was baptizing with a message of forgiveness for repentance for sin. He was, as we saw a couple weeks ago, crying out, Behold the Lamb of God. And as he continues that ministry, the verse tells us that the next day, so he's progressing through the days, John fulfilling this ministry, he has already, in the previous section, confronted the, the religious leaders that have come asking him who he is. And he points them to Jesus. Now the next day, as he continues this ministry, he was standing, it says, with two of his disciples. So his, his ministry is attracting followers. There are people that are, that are following after John the Baptist's ministry. This message of, of bearing witness of the light is drawing followers. And these two disciples, as they're standing there with John, John looks off and sees Jesus walking by. I wonder what that was like. I mean, we think later on in the gospel accounts how Jesus, when he went somewhere, he had crowds all over him. It's almost like the picture I get here is just, Jesus is just an obscure guy. Nobody knows him. And he's just walking around unrecognized. And that's when John turns to these two two of his disciples and, and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. John is fulfilling his calling. He wasn't about promoting himself. He wasn't interested in attracting followers to him. He was only interested in attracting followers so that they might be pointed to Jesus. And he does that here. He, he directs two of his disciples to see Jesus, the Lamb of God. Significant, perhaps, to note how John presents Jesus here. We think of all the ways that John could have referred to Jesus. He could have, he could have said, "Behold the Messiah," or he could have said, "Behold the King of Israel." We'll see that name given to him later in this chapter. But John, rather than using one of those titles or others that he could have chosen, refers to him as the Lamb of God. Speaking of the coming work of Jesus as the substitutionary lamb, the sacrifice for sin. And perhaps these two disciples were familiar with the Old Testament. Certainly they would have been. 
And those that were truly following after God, looking for the Messiah, would have recognized the reference to the coming Lamb of God. You see, there were many that were looking for the Messiah in His role as as a conquering king. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were looking for. Yet John chooses to speak in, in language of spiritual salvation, salvation from sin. And even we might think of Jesus' words later on as He speaks to followers, let Him who has ears to hear, let Him hear. It's almost as if John is, is saying, is, is presenting Jesus in, in such a way that those that are spiritually attuned to what the Messiah's true mission is going to be are going to recognize Him. He is the Lamb of God. So John is fulfilling his ministry of bearing witness by pointing two of his disciples to Jesus. How did these two disciples respond? Verse 37 tells us simply that they heard him say this and they followed Jesus. It doesn't record that there was any further questions for John the Baptist. Perhaps this was why they were following John the Baptist, to find out, who, okay, who is it that you are pointing to? And as soon as he points him out, like, that's the guy we're following. That's Jesus, the Lamb of God. We found out that one of these two disciples is Andrew. Find that out later in this narrative. It's quite likely that the other disciple that is not named here is John, the writer of this gospel. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago that John, in in his gospel, does not refer to himself by name ever. uses other descriptions when he's describing himself in a scene. And it's likely here that he is the other disciple of John that, that goes to Jesus. Certainly would make sense when we consider how detailed this account is, even chronicling the days and when these things happen. Surely would have been somebody that, or the writer would be somebody that was very familiar with these events. Notice what Jesus says to these two men. Verse 38, he sees them following after him and he asks them a simple question. What are you seeking? Even here we will see this a couple times here where Jesus is speaking in, in, in another, another level from, from what these guys were looking for. Jesus asks them a question that, that on the surface means one thing, but we could certainly see how Jesus would have a deeper meaning in, in the questions he is asking these guys. He asks them, what are you seeking? In fact, he will say later on in John chapter 6, when he, after he has fed the 5,000 and he is speaking to those that are following him because he fed them, he tells them that you're seeking to be fed. You're not seeking me as the bread of life. You're seeking to have your stomachs filled. Jesus understood the hearts of those that were following after after him. And here he's even probing the hearts of these two disciples that have begun following him. What are you seeking? In your heart of hearts, what is it you're seeking after? Why are you following me? Their response perhaps reveals a level of superficiality. In one sense, they refer to him as rabbi. And John adds there the 
the parenthetical, which means teacher, an indication of the, the Gentile, the Greek audience that he's writing to when he's writing this. These are people that wouldn't have been familiar with terms like rabbi. If he was writing to a Jewish audience, they would have instantly known what that meant. Rabbi. Jesus often was referred to as, as a rabbi. It was, it, this was a teacher. This was not just any teacher. This was a, a revered teacher. This is somebody that, that was deemed to have wisdom, worthy of respect, worthy of, of adherence. So they at least recognize that this is a revered teacher. And their answer to his question, what are you seeking, on the surface seems a little superficial. Their answer is, where are you staying? Where are you, where are you spending the night? And obviously that was not the, the deep answer Jesus might have been looking for. But I do think there is a hint of, of a desire on their part to engage him in further conversation. It's almost as if they were saying, what we're seeking, we can't, we can't exhaust right now. We need to go somewhere else and, and have an extended conversation. We have, we have lots of questions that we want to ask. Maybe we have lots of things that we're seeking. So where are you staying? We want further interaction with you. We want to sit down with you and discuss these things in greater depth. Of course, they are not interested in just seeing the physical place where he was staying. Might have been a cave. Maybe he was staying in the house of an acquaintance. But whatever it was, that wasn't what they were actually looking for. They they wanted, I believe, to spend time with Jesus. And Jesus' response to them is, is poignant. Verse 39, he says to them, come and you will see. Again, here Jesus, obviously, if they come, they're going to see where he's staying. I think Jesus is, is even revealing that you're going to see more than, than perhaps you're bargaining for. Come and see. Come, interact with me, and I will reveal myself to you. So as John fulfills his ministry of pointing his disciples to the Messiah... They follow in obedience, and now Jesus is beginning to reveal himself. Jesus is beginning that work of drawing men to himself. Perhaps as we read this through, you might have the question, if if you're familiar with the synoptic accounts, they all record the calling of Andrew and Peter to be the disciples of Jesus. And perhaps you know the story where Jesus finds them and they're fishing. And he calls them and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Perhaps you were thinking, I thought that's when Jesus called Peter and Andrew. This story sounds quite different from that. And often in the gospel accounts, you'll have differences in the story based on you know, the, the purpose of that writer, what, what things he's going to highlight in the story. But these two accounts seem very different. And yet there's nothing mentioned about them fishing here. What I think is happening, I think these two are, two are two, in fact, different accounts. I think the synoptic account is the time when Jesus called them to, follow, to leave their, 
their occupation behind and, and follow him full time as their disciple, as his disciple. What I think is happening here is Jesus is doing that work of calling them to himself in a saving way. Then he will one, one day later call them to this work of the ministry, so to speak. So here Jesus is revealing himself. He's, he's probing the hearts of sinful men or even righteous men, people that are expecting the Messiah. He's revealing themselves. He's opening their eyes to see who he is. Come and you will see. Well, they come. They visit him. John tells us in verse 39 that they stayed with him that day because it was the 10th hour in Jewish time, which begins at 6 a.m. This would have been 4 p.m. now. This is late in the afternoon, and it's likely that they would have just stayed the night there. They would have had a lengthy discussion to the night. I know I've been part of discussions like that, whether they be deep theological discussions or other important discussions, maybe even becoming reacquainted with a, a friend from a long time ago and you're, you're reacquainted and don't you just, you spend, you're up till all hours of the morning catching up, sharing stories. And I can almost imagine that's what this was like as they come into Jesus' home where he is staying and he just begins talking to them, revealing himself. I wonder if it went something like the conversation with the two men on the road to Emmaus recorded in Luke 24 where it says the beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Perhaps that's how Jesus revealed himself to Andrew and John here. Walked them through the Old Testament and showed how all of these things point to him as the Messiah. It must have been a wonderful evening of of conversation. I can only imagine. But whatever Jesus says to them, it brought about some transformation in their understanding. It, it accomplished something. Because the next day, Andrew goes out and finds his brother, Simon Peter. Verse 41. What does he tell him? He tells Simon, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. Again, another parenthetical clarification John makes. The Messiah is the Hebrew word. The translation anointed one. Christ is the Greek word. Same, same thing. Messiah, Christ. Perhaps you don't know the, the name Christ, the title. Christ is a title for Jesus. When we say Jesus Christ, it's, we're referring to him as Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. And here Andrew introduces his brother to Jesus. And it's even interesting the way John introduces us to Andrew. Prior to this, he was unnamed. There were, there were two unnamed disciples verse 40 he tells us that one of them that heard jesus speak was andrew and who is andrew he's simon peter's brother I mean, he's not even really noteworthy enough to know on his own but if you know you know peter 
Peter's famous. This is his brother Andrew. I think it's interesting that Andrew is rarely mentioned in the gospel accounts. He's mentioned in, in several of the lists where you have the listing of the disciples. And the only times that Andrew is a significant figure in a story, he's bringing someone to Jesus. It was Andrew that brought the boy with the five loaves and two fishes to Jesus so that he might feed the multitude. It's Andrew that is bringing his brother Simon to Jesus. So whatever insignificant figure Andrew might have been, at least as we know him today, certainly Andrew was a man that was bringing people to Jesus. I wonder how many other people he brought to Jesus during his ministry, during his life. I think this even is a sort of pattern for the way that, that we can bring people to Jesus. Here is a man that met Jesus. Here is a man that gained further understanding of who Jesus is and what is his response. It was to go tell a loved one, a friend, family member, listen to what I found. Let me show you the man I found. Jesus, the Messiah. In the Old Testament, anointing was performed on those that were serving as kings. Those that were serving as priests were anointed. Even the prophets were often anointed for their ministry. And of course, Jesus, the anointed one, came and fulfilled all three of those roles, prophet, priest, and king, as the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate anointed one. And that's Andrew's message to his brother Simon. We have found the anointed one. Again, I don't know what knowledge or understanding Andrew and Simon would have had of the Old Testament. Maybe they were brought up in to understand the, the, the teaching of the Old Testament. And so Andrew comes to him and says, all that the Old Testament talks about, this is the one that it's pointing to. But look at the different way in which Jesus reveals himself to Peter, Simon. Revealed himself to Andrew and John in a late night conversation in his home. But look how abrupt he is with Simon. We don't have any record of any introduction. There's no pleasantries between, hey, this is my brother Simon. Hey, Simon. What does Jesus do? He looks at, at Simon and he says, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus doesn't say anything except changes his name. I mean, who has the authority to change someone's name? I mean, often people will name a, a, a baby. They'll give them a, a first name and a middle name with the intention of calling them by their middle name. Maybe parents will give their, their children a nickname very early on. Of course, parents have the right to name their kids whatever they want. 
They have the right to, to call their children whatever they want. But you come and start calling my kids by some other name. What business do you have doing that? You can almost, I mean, knowing Peter, you can almost imagine what he was thinking. Like, how dare you change my name? What, what do you, who are you and what do you think you're talking about? But oh, what, what a blessing it is to understand what Jesus was communicating to, to Simon and to us. I mean, Simon just means one who hears. How bland is that? But Jesus says, you're going to be called Cephas, rock. Jesus demonstrates that he has authority over the destinies of men. This wasn't just about changing somebody's name. This wasn't just about calling somebody something different. He was telling Peter, not only am I changing your name, but I'm changing your destiny. And of course, we know that Peter was a fisherman. Jesus took Peter from being a fisher of fish to a fisher of men. And we know from Matthew 16 where Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answer with Elijah and John the Baptist and Then he turns the question on them. Who do you say that I am? And you know Peter's response. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is telling Peter, I'm not just changing your name, I'm changing your purpose. I'm changing your your whole life's mission. It's no longer to be about going out in the lake and catching fish. I'm calling you to plant my church. Your confession of me as the Messiah, as the Christ, is the rock upon which my church will be built. We know on the day of Pentecost, it's Peter that preaches in Acts chapter 2. And the church is birthed. What began is just simple conversations in a small little area of Israel called Galilee. In Acts 2, in Jerusalem, thousands are added to the church. And then going on, we have in the book of Acts the record of of that church advancing, not only in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, through the ministry of Paul and others, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that advance is continuing today. Where every corner of the earth, there are men and women that are taking that same message that Peter confessed in Matthew 16. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And that confession is going to the corners of the earth. Just as Jesus knew what Peter would become, I mean, the whole reason Jesus knew what Peter would become was because Jesus was going to make him become that. 
what comfort and encouragement there is for us in that reality. Not only does Jesus have authority to change our names, our character, our hearts, but He, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has the ability to to make it happen. And that promise that Jesus made to Simon Peter here in John 1, the promise He made to him in Matthew 16, those were not empty promises. Jesus made those promises because He knew that He had the power to make it happen. And the promises that you and I have from Jesus are not empty promises. These are promises that will be fulfilled because He has the power to fulfill them. So Jesus knows you. Jesus knows what He is making of you. And He will continue to make you into the image of Christ. So that's Andrew and Peter and John meeting Jesus. Let's look now at Philip and Nathaniel, verse 43 to the end of the chapter. Again, we see the the different ways in which Jesus introduces himself to people. Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist who were pointed to Jesus. They follow him. He reveals himself to them. Peter is brought by Andrew to Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to Peter. Verse 43, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. And he finds Philip and said to him, follow me. Again, I think there's a beautiful picture of the different ways that God calls sinners to himself. Even in the examples of these men. For many of us, we might have been Andrews and Johns that we grew up in places like this and we had people like John the Baptist pointing us to the Messiah, pointing, the, pointing us to Jesus. Maybe for some of us, we're like Simon, that a friend or a family member has brought us to Jesus. Then maybe there's some of us like Philip that Jesus just found us. Of course, theologically speaking, we know that there's none of us that are seeking after God. There's, we're, we all go our own way. But as it works in our experience, there are some that, by the moving of God's Spirit drawing them, are, begin to seek after the things of God, begin to ask questions and want to understand more about Christianity. What is this Bible? What does it say? What does it mean? Then there are some that aren't looking for God in the least. And God finds them. God reaches down and and finds them and says, you're going to follow me. That's what he does here for for Philip. I don't know to what degree Philip knew about the coming Messiah, what he was looking for. 
that tells us that Jesus found Philip and called him. Philip, like Andrew, having found Jesus, the Messiah, brings others to Jesus. In the case of Philip, he finds Nathaniel. And he says to him basically what Andrew told Peter. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This, I think, would be an indication that at least Nathaniel would have had some understanding of the Old Testament writings. And perhaps Philip probably did too. Maybe they were both religious leaders that would have known the Old Testament. And Philip tells Nathaniel, the, the one that we're studying about in the Old Testament, the one Moses is writing about, and the prophets, this is him, Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe Nathaniel was someone like Simeon and Anna. You remember them from the book of Luke? They were devout believers expecting the Messiah. When Jesus was born, his parents brought them before them and they blessed God because they were able to see in their old age this baby that had been sent to earth as the Messiah. Perhaps that's how Nathaniel had been, seeking for the Messiah. And, and here Philip comes to him with the good news that we found him. He's here. And this is him, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And how does Nathaniel respond? Verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Philip, you had me with Moses and the prophets, but then when you said he's from Nazareth, no way. I think maybe there's a few things going on here. Remember, they're in Galilee, small region, the northern part of Israel. Nazareth was a small, insignificant town in, in Galilee. Jesus, referred to here as the son of Joseph, his father Joseph, human father, was just a carpenter. Really, Joseph was, was nobody. Jesus, Nazareth was, was, you know, Podunkville. I mean, the one that Moses was speaking about, that the prophets we're speaking about, yeah, maybe Jerusalem, but not Nazareth. Nathaniel could have just been very skeptical, skeptical to think, I don't think anybody important is ever coming out of Nazareth. We also know that Nathaniel was from Cana. John 21.2 refers to him as being Nathaniel from Cana, another small city in or small town in Galilee. Perhaps this could have been a statement made out of city rivalry. Not from Cana. That's Nazareth. No good thing is going to come from Nazareth. I was raised in the Midwest. I was born in Michigan, so I'm a fan of the University of Michigan. And their main rival is Ohio State University, 
a little different than Oregon, Oregon State. When you're fans of Oregon, Oregon State, you're still all Oregonians, you know? If you get to Michigan and Ohio, you're from different states. Remember growing up and, you know, people talk about the state up north or the M state? Highly offensive. In fact, the story is told of the Ohio State football coach back in the 70s when they would play a game in Michigan and they would be driving the bus back to, back to Ohio. He would wait until they crossed the state line before they stopped to eat because he didn't want Michigan businesses to get their money. And this, this is a rivalry. I mean, these are two states that don't like each other. There's no respect. In fact, I own a T-shirt. I should have brought it. Michigan colors, the outline of the state of Ohio, and it says, worst state ever. More likely that the Messiah certainly would come out of Nazareth than Ohio, I agree. Sorry if you're from Ohio. But maybe it's something like that that Nathaniel, out of rivalry, says nothing good is going to come out of Nazareth. Or maybe for this reason. Nowhere in the Old Testament is Nazareth mentioned as in connection with the Messiah. Nathaniel was a religious man studying the Old Testament scriptures. He would have been, he would, he would have been expecting, ironically enough, the Messiah to become out of Bethlehem, the city of David. That's where the Messiah is going to come from. We know that's where Jesus was born in fulfillment of the prophecy. But yet often in his earthly ministry, he is referred not as Jesus from Bethlehem, but Jesus from Nazareth. And so perhaps it, was, it wasn't a skeptical remark or made out of rivalry, but perhaps just the honest evaluation of the Old Testament scriptures that God didn't say anything about the Messiah coming out of Nazareth. Once again, the response to that question, with whatever, whatever Nathaniel had in, in motivating him to, to make that comment, ask that question, Philip's response to him, come and see. Whatever, whatever you think, whatever, you, whatever it is you're expecting, come and see. Second time in this narrative that that phrase has been used to invite someone to come and meet the Messiah. And then Jesus reveals himself just as he did to the others, reveals himself to Nathaniel. Look at how he does it. Verse 47. He doesn't even wait for Nathaniel to come and be introduced to him. He sees him coming toward him and says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Perhaps this is another indication that Nathaniel was a, a religious man, somebody that was devout, pious, one who pursued righteousness, one who was a believer in the the words of the Old Testament prophecies, one who was looking for the Messiah. 
Jesus recognizes that this is a man that is without deceit. I mean, even if he thinks little of Nazareth, at least he's saying it like it is. He says what he's, what he's thinking. He says what he means. Perhaps there's also a hint of an allusion here to the patriarch Israel. Another man that God changed his name. He was Jacob, the deceiver. But God changed his name to Israel. And here we have a, an Israelite indeed in whom this is not a deceiver. There is no deceit in him. Perhaps even this could be a man that had already been a believer in Christ. Perhaps he's someone that has already had his heart changed. What is Nathaniel's response? Quite, quite surprised. Asked Jesus, how do you know me? You ever had that experience of meeting somebody and they, they know things about you and they say things about you that, how do you know that about me? Who's been talking to you about me? That's Nathaniel's response. Okay, that, that is me, but how do you, I, I've never met you before. Jesus reveals that he knows everything about Nathaniel. Before Philip called you, he tells him, when you were over there under the fig tree, I saw you. I have no idea what he is referring to there about Nathaniel being under the fig tree. Some interesting theories. I heard one that Nathaniel was born around the same time as Jesus and to protect him from Herod's decree to kill the babies. His mom, similar to Moses, hid him under a fig tree and perhaps Jesus was saying that that was me that protected you under that fig tree. I don't know how likely that is. Probably unlikely. But the point is really the same. Whatever it meant, whatever Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, whenever that was, that was the day before this or 30 years before this. Whatever it was, Nathaniel understood what it meant. And Jesus was telling him that when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Not only do I know about you inwardly, that you are without deceit, but I know everything about you outwardly. Jesus tells Nathaniel, I know you, I see you. Again, I think there's real encouragement and comfort here for us. We consider that wherever we are, whether it's under the fig tree or whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, whatever difficulty, whatever conflict, Jesus sees us. Jesus knows where we are. Jesus is with us. Whatever we're doing outwardly, we can know that Jesus is, is with us. He sees us. He, he understands us. Nathaniel's response 
Verse 49, he answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Again, he recognizes and ascribes to Jesus the title of rabbi, revered teacher. But he goes beyond that to indicate that he believes Jesus is the promised Messiah. Why do I say that? Because of these titles that he gives to Jesus. Son of God, King of Israel. These two titles of God are are connected together in a few Old Testament passages. I think all three of them are or at least familiar to us. Let me read them. If you, if you want to turn to them, you can. If you want to jot them down to look at later, you can. The first one is Second Samuel chapter 7. This is God speaking to David, making a covenant with David. He says in verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's all clear enough. But then verse 14 continues. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So clearly there is a, an immediate connection with Solomon, his son, who will succeed him and who will sin. Jesus will, or God will discipline him. But there is this connection between David's son and the kingdom. So near term, that's Solomon. But Luke chapter 1, as verse 32, as Gabriel is talking to Mary, promising the coming of Jesus, Luke 1.32 says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. You know, at that point, the, the throne of David had ceased. Israel had been taken into captivity. That promise to David seemed to have kind of been over. That, that promise that his throne would be forevermore. God tells Mary that that son that is conceived in her by the Holy Ghost is not only the son of the Most High, but he is the descendant of David. He will sit on David's throne and establish his kingdom forever. Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Let me back up a couple of verses. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Messiah. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So you have king. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So here in the prophecy or the psalmist writing of the coming anointed one, God speaks of him as the king and the son. Then finally, maybe the most well-known of these, Isaiah chapter 9. Passage we often read at Christmas time. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. So that son that is born is the son of God, the son of David, who will sit on David's throne. And Nathaniel's assigning those names to Jesus here, son of God, king of Israel, is an indication that he, he is connecting those Old Testament prophecies with Jesus. Jesus is the the anointed one. Nathaniel, having confessed that, Jesus responds to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In other words, literally in the Greek, that you ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus is telling him that, yeah, I, that was impressive that I knew you. I saw you under the fig tree, but you're going to see greater things than those. There will be signs, and we're going to see a lot of those in the book of John. Signs Jesus uses to reveal who he is. And there will be those that believe because of the signs, and there will be those that try to kill him because of those signs. There will be some that see him as the Son of God and the King of Israel. They will see the signs that he does, and they will be drawn to faith in him. And there will be those that see his taking on these titles as, a, as an act of blasphemy and will crucify him for it. What are the the greater things than these? The signs that are to come in, in this gospel. But also verse 51. Jesus says to him, truly, truly. This is a description or, or statement. John records Jesus saying many times. Truly, truly. It's distinctive to John's gospel. Other versions say, I tell you the truth. I assure you. The point is, what I am telling you is absolutely true. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
And here he, he shifts. He's speaking to Nathaniel, and now here he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, plural. So he talks to Nathaniel, and then he turns to those that are with him, speaking to all of you. You're going to see heaven opened and angels descending and ascending. What is that? What is this referring to? What does this mean? The statement, perhaps you can see in it, an allusion to a couple Old Testament passages, Exodus 28 and Daniel 7. Exodus 28 is the record of Jacob. Referred to this earlier, Jacob laying down, has a dream. He sees a a ladder or a stairway rising to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it between heaven and earth. And it was at that time that God affirms for him the covenant that he made. Just like I promised to Abraham, your grandfather, Isaac, your father, so I am going to fulfill this promise to you. I think what Jesus is trying to communicate through this imagery of the angels of God ascending and descending on Him, the Son of Man, is that He is the, the access between God and men. Even if you go back to the book of Genesis, prior to Jacob's vision, we have another example of an attempt at building a structure between earth and heaven, the Tower of Babel. And God destroyed that. He wasn't going to allow that to happen. But God has made a way. You see, there was no way for man to reach heaven. Instead, God sent His Son to earth to be that ladder, that stairway between God and man. Jesus is the ultimate access between God and man. Not only that, He is the ultimate meeting place with God. The only access that we have between God and salvation, the only access we have to meet God, even as we gather in in places like this to meet God, we, we meet God only through Jesus. God meets with us here only through the work of Jesus. As the Son of Man. Another profound name, title of Jesus. This chapter is full of titles of Jesus. Son of Man is used by Jesus and only Jesus in the Gospels. Used one time by Stephen in the book of Acts, but in the gospel accounts, only Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man, and he does it over 80 times. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself Son of Man. And in one sense, it speaks of his humanity. You remember we. saw back earlier in this that Jesus refers to um, Peter as Peter or Simon, the son of John. In fact, Nathaniel, in other accounts in the Gospels, is referred to as Bartholomew. And in the language, Bar means son of, Bartholomew. He is 
The name Bartholomew is a reference to him in relation to his father. He was the son of his father. So Jesus calling himself the son of man is on one hand a a proclamation of his humanity. But its fulfillment of Daniel 7 is so much bigger than that. Daniel has this vision. The clouds, from the clouds, or with the clouds of heaven, rather there comes one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And, he was, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, when he calls himself the Son of Man, perhaps has in mind that he is a man. But more likely he is communicating that he is the Son of Man of Daniel 7. He is the one that will one day will come to the Ancient of Days. To him belongs all authority and dominion. He is the one to whom all authority belongs. Just as he had the authority to change Simon's name to Peter, he has the authority to establish his kingdom. And he is is beginning that work in this account with these five men that meet him here. He, He begins in seed form the creation of what will become the church. And it's the authority of Jesus that began that church and continues that church. You remember what Jesus said when he left his disciples? Matthew 28. All authority is given to me. Go and preach the gospel. He is the one to whom all authority belongs. He he is the one that has the authority and ability to create establish and grow the church. Quickly, when someone says that Jesus never claimed to be God, just the title Son of Man that Jesus uses over 80 times is a claim to be God. We are insignificant people at least many of us view ourselves that way. We see the power. We, we see the, the church as it has exploded. And we think, I mean, that was, that was Peter. That was John. We view ourselves as insignificant, but I tell you that we have huge potential when our message, our invitation to people is the same that we find here. Come and see. Come and see Jesus. It's not about me. It wasn't about John the Baptist. It was about Jesus. Come and see Jesus. So we might be a relatively small church. We might not think ourselves to be much. We have huge potential when our, our purpose, our aim is the proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. 
when that is our message, we could be about a thousand different things. And there's churches that are about a thousand different things. But we here strive to be about the preaching of Jesus. Wanting others to see and come to Jesus. I think that these examples from John 1 show us that that is all that is necessary for God to, to work. That's what God has chosen to work through. Those 999 other things that we could do, God hasn't promised to bless any of those things. But God has promised to bless the preaching of His Word as it reveals the Anointed One, the Messiah, Jesus. We have an opportunity now to come to the Lord's table. I mentioned a few minutes ago that these titles of Jesus at least the ones that were ascribed to him by others, literally got him killed. In fact, they put on his cross, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, as a mockery. Jesus in, we'll see this in several weeks in John 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, says the Son of Man, his, his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness to be the salvation of the people, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Speaking of his death on the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so we come to the table to remember and proclaim that death. Because for us, that death means our salvation. We come because Jesus came not as a a king that would conquer by military force, at least not yet. But he came to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. So we come to remember and proclaim that reality, but we also come in anticipation of the event that this table points us forward to. Revelation 19, after... We are with Jesus. Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be, this is John writing again. Then I heard what seemed to me the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we come now, even as I prayed earlier, confessing our, our weakness, our sins. There will come a day that those sins will be gone. We will be dressed in white robes, we, have, we will have been washed. 
And we come to this table to anticipate that event, knowing that Jesus giving himself to be our sacrifice has accomplished our being clothed in white robes, our being clothed in righteous the righteous deeds of the saints as we are prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I invite to this table all who, who are looking to the Messiah, to Jesus for salvation. This table is open to anyone that is trusting Jesus to be their Savior. Looking to Him for forgiveness of sin. Relying on the Spirit. Responding to the Spirit's work of conviction of sin. and Obeying Him in repentance. So we will come now, I'll pray, and then we'll participate in this table. We'll come and take the elements and be seated. We'll sing a song while we do that. And then I will come up and lead us in partaking of those elements together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to the table. Thank you for what it means Thank you for the broken body of Jesus that he willingly offered on our behalf. The blood that he shed for us. I pray that as we come now that this would be a time of of remembrance. So in one sense, it should be solemn. We should contemplate that work of our Savior dying for us. But it should also be celebratory, anticipating the event that already has been assured. There is no doubt that we will one day as Christ be presented to Him as a pure and spotless bride. So give us Thoughts of both remembrance and thoughts of anticipation and hope and joy at what is what is before us. Pray that you would be glorified through our coming to the table. Pray this through Jesus. Amen.